I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> they live. What do these things want, and why are they here? You still don't get it, do you, boy? They have recruited the rich and the powerful. They're running the whole show. Wake up! They're all about you, all around you. Blind us to the truth. Take a look. They are safe as long as they are not discovered. I don't know what they are or where they came from, but we gotta stop them. Stay away from me. Put these on. They have us. Look at them. They're everywhere. We have no other choice. I don't like this one bit. Leave it alone, man. It ain't none of my business, ain't none of yours. We have been lulled into a trance. Listen to what I'm saying to you. We're in trouble. The whole world's in trouble. Control us! You're sending some kind of signals on TV sets. I've got one that can see. Mama don't like tattletale. Now we start spilling some blood. Let's go! Push I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick And I'm all out of bubblegum. This is a commissioned episode for Maya Suris. We are joined today, unusually for this kind of show, by Maya Suris. Hello, Maya. I have come to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. <laughs> <laughs> if I could have put money on the quote you were going to use... It would, it would probably have been that one. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> I'm going to hold off on synopsizing or voicing allegory here in the opening, because I suspect that the bulk of the conversation we are about to have will cover that. So, <clears throat> this film stars Rowdy Roddy Piper, diversifying his portfolio from one of the greatest heels in WWF wrestling to leading man in B-movies. He had a, a run after this of being in uh, films with Billy Blanks, the Tybo guy. It's unusual as a turn for him because he's actually quite quiet for, for a lot of the beginning third, the, the opening act of the film. And if you know Roddy's persona in the ring at the time, he'd do a lot of shouting and a lot of pointing, and he'd get kind of super red in the face and very head up. Here we have this week on Piper's Pit, of course, Andre the Giant, uh, supposedly the biggest man in the world ever. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, where are you from, Andre? None of your business. You think you're tough? Come on! Hey, you ain't nothing! You ain't nothing, I'll tell you one thing right now. You wanna fight Andre? You're gonna find out one thing. You do not throw rocks at a man who's got a machine gun. He, he did keep telling John Carpenter, you have to let me say this, 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 and this. And I, I think negotiations were had and Carpenter let him have about three or four lines that were like effectively his wrestling persona lines. Mm. You can tell which ones they were. <laughs> Carpenter was actually into WWF at the time. He uh, he met with Roddy after WrestleMania 3. That was the one with Randy Savage versus Ricky Steamboat. That was a monumental occasion. Piper fought Adonis or Andy Adonis or something like that. Someone forgotten. Piper died several years ago and I think we immediately put this on as a in memoriam in our house because it's uh, it's it's a cult classic. So, <clears throat> the first big question is, without giving away the overarching plot, 
Who is his character, George Nada, both to the film and to the society within the film? Who is George? Who is Nada? <laughs> well, it's 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 What's fascinating that it's fascinating that you bring him up in that way because I'm not sure that his actual name is stated in the film itself. Does he ever? He must like, be called George. Does anybody surely. ever call him by his name? I, that's a genuine question because I honestly don't remember. Even I just watched this last night. I was like, "Wait a minute! Did anybody actually call him by his own name?" Because I, I honestly don't know. Probably not. I had to look it up. I, th- yeah, I think somebody does, but we watched so much like backstage extra material last night yeah. that I can't remember mm-hmm. whether it was actually said in that. We got the super remastered Blu-ray, which has got a lot of extras to sort of delve into, and uh, we're gonna. Right. Have it. We'll be reiterating quite a lot of the stuff on there. But, I mean, the name comes directly from the original short story that this is inspired by. Which I got you to read. Okay. Which you got me to yeah. read, which is uh, 8 o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. uh, written in 1963. And it's also, like, nada means nothing. Mm-hmm. Nothing. And mm-hmm. he is part of the group of people who are considered to be nothing Tra-la-la. in this world. Yeah, he's... He's basically a, a bit of a drifter when we first see him. He's backpacking into Los Angeles. He doesn't seem to have a whole lot except for the clothes on his back and whatever is in his camping gear. He's looking for a job. He doesn't really have many connections. He tries to go to, you know, he tries to get to an unemployment place. They tell him, we got nothing for you. And he ends up on a construction site. So he's basically taking odd jobs wherever he can. Yeah. It's, and it's squatting very, wherever he can. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's very uh, John Rambo hmm. in mm-hmm. terms of uh, you, he's framed as being, this is our protagonist, but he is somebody who has been shat upon from a great height hmm. and is simply trying to do the best he yeah. can at this point. Very downtrodden, very down in his luck. Hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Unlike John Rambo, he's not traumatized though. He's just frustrated. No, but in terms of his entry into the film, yeah. it's it's, it's mm-hmm. very similar. And also, it's 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 similarly set up. Yeah. Yeah. And just to mention at this point, by the way, Carpenter's music shines in this. This entry to L.A. and there are many many other L.A.-based movies that I think have kind of taken their cue from this a little bit, in that they have that sort of synthesizer. Um, mm-hmm. What's the term? It's it's very neon noir, and it really gives you that sense of this is an oppressive city. It is not kind, and they set mm. that up almost entirely with the music before he even gets to the unemployment office. And it is made abundantly mm. clear from the woman's tone of voice and the dismissive way that she looks at him, or rather doesn't look at him, that this city is not kind. We don't care for yeah. outsiders in LA. Yeah. It's, it's ironic. No, definitely actually, not. The, the conversations that take place between uh, Nada or Nada and Frank later on, and, and some other people too, it becomes apparent that there is the drift that everybody is caught up in is towards LA. Other, other places in the country are not kind to people either. Uh, Nada's come from. Colorado and Frank's come from Detroit and other he's people from Detroit come, yeah yeah other people have come from various other places but it is apparent that the whole system is falling apart and LA is like the sinkhole that everybody kind of runs to it's kind of like the grapes of wrath heading out California way yeah 
yeah a little bit and i i would imagine that is only a you know a byproduct of the fact that los angeles is such a big city and it's so sprawling that you like just by sheer numbers there's a better chance that you could find work there so uh, yeah, like I say, he, t- he takes uh, shelter in a shanty town of working homeless. So it's not like they're uh, j- just lying about, feeling incredibly depressed, as is really easy to fall into uh, of a trap as being homeless. Uh, they are desperately trying to get work. He, after a police raid on a small group of anti-establishment folks that we don't really get to know, there's a, a preacher shouting about how we are owned like cattle and he gets dragged away. Uh, George scavenges around their base of operations and finds a box of their specially made sunglasses. He doesn't know what's in it until he opens it in an alley, and then he's like, ugh, just sunglasses. And then he puts on a pair of them in the street after he's discarded the rest, and he suddenly sees the world differently. And this is the crux of the movie. And it's it's impossible for people to not know this if they've been on Twitter, because that meme of Roddy Piper putting on sunglasses and then taking them off again is, <laughs> is omnipresent. So, um... Yeah. What do these magic shades symbolize? What happens when he puts them on and what does that mean? It's it's like taking away a filter, basically. When you put the sunglasses on, you can basically see the subliminal messaging around you. So in advertising, you learn this a lot. Like there's basically an underlying message in all advertising. If you're seeing an ad for whatever and it's showing you a certain image or a certain person, doing a specific thing the actual message is blank and the sunglasses effectively show you what that thing is so you could be looking at an advert for a car and the underlying message is consume or you could be seeing a a beautiful woman lying on a beach and the message is marry and procreate that sort of thing Um, a lot of times Piper will, his character Nada will pick up a magazine, look through it, and all he sees are very simple phrases or even just single words that say, obey, consume, go to sleep. This is kind of echoed by a bit of graffiti that he sees in the beginning of the film that says, they live, we sleep, which is where the title of the movie comes from. But the other, the other and slightly, uh, possibly more important one is that he starts to see people differently and certain individuals have this kind of alien monstrous um, look to them. So suddenly everybody who looked like just a normal regular human being has this like dis- <laughs> this disgusting alien face with these weird shining eyes and it's like they've lost several layers just... of skin and had their eyes yeah. polished. Yes. It's also quite significant, I think, that when he's wearing the sunglasses, he sees everything in black and white. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there's a there's a moment a little bit later when he gets some contact lenses and the same thing is there. And I think part of that is that the the removal of the filter seems to include, let's just get rid of these very bright, dazzling colors because they're a little bit distracting at this point. We need you to focus on the message. 
it is extremely on the nose. Yeah, it's very <laughs> um, blunt. It's, it ain't subtle. It's not subtle. No, no. Even the messages themselves are not gussied up in any way. It's just sort of a, a exactly. black impact font. It's not actually impact, yes. but it looks like that. Very utilitarian. Yeah. Just a single word in black on white. Yeah. In black on white. And funnily enough, there uh, just another this is another wrestling tie so i am not sure how many people would be familiar with the the artist obey but obey used this font and this graphic from this movie for their own like imaging and their own marketing and used like a, a basically a stylized image of andre the giant as their logo i know they start the andre the giant picture i've, I've seen that mm-hmm. that was after this yeah right. so that's kind of where that's kind of where that all it's it's funny that it has kind of those wrestling ties with it too but that obey like it's in the exact same font the exact same print very block letters black on white or white on black that's kind of where Obey got their their graphic design and their their symbol from. Uh, so I just thought that was a, a cool little modern tie-in as well. Mm. But yeah, this messaging is not subtle at all. But I think that's kind of the point, is that you people have been put to sleep for such a long time that they almost have to hit you over the head as hard as they can and as bluntly as they can. Mm. Absolutely. The metaphors in this are rough cut. They are not sanded down and and painted nicely. They are just thrown there and you you pick them up and run with them. But I mean, Mm -hmm. ultimately, this is John Carpenter. John Carpenter, in case anyone's noticed, (laughs) is not a subtle guy. He's a a great filmmaker. Don't get me wrong. There are many of his films that I think are absolutely superb. But honestly, Mm. the directness and the abruptness of them is usually their strength. That's true. And I think it also ties back in with, so you mentioned that the original short story was written like in the early 60s. -hmm. That's kind of coming right off of the era of these like pulp science fiction stories, Mm -hmm. uh, certainly B B movie science fiction, uh, you know, type things. So it's a little bit aping off of that style Mm -hmm. as well. Um, actually, I was going to ask, what is the experience of reading this whopping six-page short story, Sharon? <laughs> it is a very short story. I mean, it, it is... It, if you think the film is simple and direct, the short story is even more <laughs> simple and direct. So in actual fact, Carpenter added mel- multiple layers of complexity in the formulated wow. script. So, so that's... Um, the, the one thing that I will say, when I first started reading it, I was like two or three paragraphs in and I went... Oh. oh, I wanted to know what that O was <laughs> about. Alex doesn't Uh-oh. know what that O is yet. So basically, the, the short story is just about this one guy. It takes place in a very short space of time. The control that the aliens have over the people is entirely down to hypnotism. They are using uh, post-hypnotic suggestions through the TV mm-hmm. and radio mm-hmm. to Which, well, TV was control. relatively new at this point. Yeah, so, it, so primarily right. it's radio, mm-hmm. but there is a bit of TV as well. But th- there is this constant, you will go to sleep. And sometimes when people start to waver in their... Uh, their being hypnotized they will get phone calls from the aliens and then they will actually get 
hypnotic suggestions down the phone. And early on in the story, George gets a call. He's he, Something's happened to cause him to wake up, and I don't think we ever really find out what it is, um, unless I've completely forgotten, but he it seems to be spontaneous. <laughs> and he gets a call to say, you are an old man, you will have a heart attack and die at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. And he's acting the whole time like he is still under their control. He tries very hard not to give away that he has woken up. So he's mm. his opinion at this point is right if this works i'm gonna die at eight o'clock tomorrow morning there's nothing i can do about that i'm going to try and wake up as many people as i can in this 24-hour period and okay but the when he sees an alien for the first time um with his his awoken eyes so no sunglasses so there's no sunglasses no it's it's just the fact that he's woken up from the hypnotism but when he sees them it's a lizard they're they are, the lizard people. Exactly. They are <laughs> oh, no. Oh, that's your own. Oh. Reptilian and snake-like. Oh, and, things. and I was like, is this where the whole the elite and lizard people that are controlling us come from? It's the reptile people. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so that, oh, was no. the, that was the O. <laughs> that's really funny. The end of it is he has uh, he has some interactions with his girlfriend who he's trying to wake up and, and it kind of fails miserably. And then he figures out a way to get wake up people into the broadcast so that, they, that everybody will actually be hypnotised or unhypnotised into waking up because they're seeing the image that they're supposed to be seeing. Well, go for broke. Go with wake up sheeple. Well, yeah. <laughs> oh, it comes mm-hmm. This is yeah. kind of wake up sheeple the movie. Yeah. And then he... So Very he, much. He kind of gets that in and then it's eight o'clock the next morning and he dies and the end of the story is and everybody woke up but George never got to see it so we don't know what happened next and I was like that is the most cop-out ending I have ever seen in my life Dang. it's a short story that <laughs> they're kind of predicated upon cop-out endings it's, it's barely a short story it's a joke is what it is it's a lengthy <laughs> joke Jesus one of the only other uh, one, uh, messages that is encoded into the, all of these signs which are all over the street that we haven't mentioned yet is work eight hours I feel like in the meantime, mm. since then, that would actually have gone up by a bit. It, the amount of pressure that is being put on people to work their asses off beyond even what their mm-hmm. grandparents used to work. Specifically, though, it says uh, sleep eight hours, work eight hours, work then there's something else eight hours, which I never call It's like... I think it's like have it's it's play eight hours or something right, like so that. Okay. It's but like the, you basically have eight hours to pretty much do anything in your life, absolutely. and that includes sleeping, going to work, and having any leisure time to yourself. So I would imagine collectively, like in a week, you get a total of eight hours to do all the leisure things. The eight hours for everything else is a daily thing. Yeah, I mean, like it, it you don't just like get up out of bed and fall into work there's exactly. a lot of pre- preparation the, and travel the, and the, shit this is like a uh, like a formula that that was supposedly this is how our lives measure themselves out we naturally sleep 8 hours we naturally like need 8 hours to work and then 8 hours to play but it it's it's such a, a fixed idea, it ignores all of the things around it. If you are expected to do eight hours work, then you're going to have to cut commute time. When do you eat? Break time. Break yeah. time. Yeah, yep. exactly. It's like that that 
is it, it sounds nice and even. Eight, eight, and eight. Oh yeah, that makes sense. But but it doesn't work that way. It, it seems to be approaching work from the point of view of everyone is even, everyone is exactly. under the same exactly. pressure. Exactly, that's the point. It's it's to sort of reinforce this idea that there is a nice, safe rhythm that everybody can get into and it works for everyone. It's weirdly like capitalism masquerading yeah. as collectivism. Yes, yeah, that's exactly what it is, yeah. It's, but that's the thing. Oh, we're going to be having a go at catripalapitalism at this. Well, yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh. Just yeah. in case you If anybody wanted. wants to bow out of the political stuff, it may be worth best to turn off now. I did get a um, message the other day saying, and this is a comment posted on our Patreon, below the Thor Ragnarok revisit. Capitalism, while not perfect with flaws that can be countered, has lifted up a lot of people and allowed them to live comfortably. While we should challenge millionaires and billionaires to do more to help, one doesn't have to be that rich to live comfortably. Most people can't and shouldn't be that rich in order for most work, tasks and services people need slash want get done. Until there's an entirely new and better system to replace it, being anti-capitalism seems pointless to me. Perhaps that will change one day when technology catches up to us, like in Star Trek. But until then, for the most part, I'm going to stick with what we have. My response was a polite but factual saying we should lay off capitalism until there's a better system to replace it is playing into the game of the insanely powerful and embedded enforcers of capitalism who perpetually prevent this from happening. If you stop all dissent on the ground floor, there will never be a change. There will never be an update to the system. There will never even be an approach towards fairness. And that begins at telling everybody to shut up about how unfair it is. And convincing us to tell each other on the bottom rungs that there's no better way of doing things so we should all just be quiet. Not gonna do that. Not gonna shut up. The rage is relentless. We need a movie with the quickness. You are the witness of change at the counteract. We gotta take the power back. to discuss what might be better how are we supposed to come up with something better oh well we'll just wait for the president to invent something what president's not gonna mm. <laughs> anyway um, you know yes he's so, in power at the behest this... of capitalism why do you think this standard exactly, yeah. is old man who is white yes and this may sound like this may sound like we're just ranting, but this is actually very pertinent stuff to what actually happens and they live. I was oh, just yeah. about to say this is very relevant to the. Film. This is text. <laughs> yes, I'm just gonna skip a little bit, but the the black and white when you see the aliens' faces is sustained throughout the movie, so that they then get to have another big reveal at the very end when you finally mm-hmm. get to see them in color, and it's even worse. Oh yeah. Oh my god, yeah, it's ugh. It's very unsettling. Yeah. It's they look very like something unsettling. out of Ghostbusters. Absolutely. It's mm. true. I actually have a friend of this is just a, a complete side story, but a friend of mine made a custom action figure for me a few years back. It was one of those blank uh, little stand-up toys. That they basically look like Funko Pops that you can paint yourself. Mm-hmm. And he made one for me that is one of the they live aliens. And like you can see it like plain as day it's like this kind of blue skin with this like uh, uh almost a, a tendons coming through their skin that's like bright red these big shining eyes and like this weird like blocky chin that's almost like a skeleton coming through it's a skeleton very unsettling. 
It is the Skeleton League a little bit. The Skeleton League. <laughs> We've come to get you, Superman. We've disguised ourselves as your friends. <laughs> Soon you'll be one of us, Superman. You'll be nothing but a skeleton. <laughs> we have no powers, but we talk like this. <laughs> You are not allowed to join the Skeleton League. We're very exclusive. Unless your jaw can clatter like this. Do we think there's some kind of symbolism in this, by the way? Because I was trying to work this out. That that they look like humans, but without the skin. Now, on the one hand, it's like that means that they don't have, like, they can't feel, theoretically, because their, their nerves would be utterly blasted because there's no protection for them. Um, but it also makes them extremely vulnerable. Or is it simply that they were trying to make them look hideous? I think it was they were trying to make them look hideous because, I mean, honestly, the reaction that people have, and this is skipping way, way to like the very last like minute of the film, but when the entire, the satellite dish that is projecting out this signal that is keeping everybody asleep and keeping the, the filter in place, as it were, when that gets destroyed and the whole thing comes down and the actual human beings start to see the creatures for what they really are, they are horrified. They're screaming. They're running for their lives. Like they, these creatures are disgusting. Like they almost have this visceral quality to them. They're kind of wet and like gross. So I'm getting I, I kind think of a Dorian really Gray vibe from this. Like, you know, if these rotten people, bit. we could see what they're, they are yeah. inside. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're just like oh, falling. Yes, the, they're falling apart. The, the artifice is all gone and you just see them for what they are, which are these like underneath uh, a very polished exterior. There is something that basically looks like it's rotting from the inside out. Mm. Uh, a couple of other things that are on these uh, uh, messages. We've got submit, which is in there. That that is very much trying to uh, to to keep people malleable, to keep people when they start to uh, suggest maybe an alternative for them to maybe get shouted down fairly easily. Mm. And uh, another one is honor authority. Yeah. Um, <laughs> There, there, there's, the there's, there's quite a lot of uh, obviously the, the arbiters of authority in this specifically are the police uh, and uh, I feel like if this was made today it would be a very different film. Some might say that it has in fact been remade repeatedly in the interim 32 33 years mm. since this film was made. Uh, but yeah. Uh, yeah, honor authority is absolutely there and the, the first police that he meets with his sunglasses on are definitely these creep aliens. But Here's the thing, it's not everyone, and that's what makes it difficult. There's also another one where the, uh, a guy running a, a, new, a newspaper stand asks him if he's going to buy the magazine he keeps leafing through and staring at, and he's holding a sheaf of papers, which we first off see are, are, uh, is, is money, is currency, is dollars, and uh, when glanced at, it, the message on those pieces of white paper says, this, this is your god which is absolutely yeah. accurate to how the economy itself has kind of been built up as a religion. The yeah. idea that every every motivation, for the most part, there are exceptions, but every motivation, if, if you lean into the whole capitalist system, is money. Is everything that you do is for money. And yes, it could be argued that you can... Um, 
there there are other needs that underpin that and money is the thing that enables you to uh, exchange to have those needs met but we are not really encouraged or weren't really encouraged at this point to discuss what those underpinning needs were and in particular whether there was mm. any other means of getting them met that didn't involve the making and exchanging of money yeah i think it's it's a, an important point that very early in the film there's like an ad playing or, or somebody's got the tv on and they mention specifically that food stamps are becoming scarcer and like it's it's getting harder and harder to actually get any form of welfare like welfare programs they set up very early on are just being cut down and cut down and cut down so even when you consider something like that they're already setting up that like you uh, this form of help for people this form of of you know a, a very you know something that's very rooted in a, a socialist uh, you know uh, kind of system that is all being whittled away mm, and the only thing you have left is to it's it, you know it's not as uh, it's his point of view early in the film is that I just want to keep my head down and I just want to work hard and I just want to do good work and try to get ahead mm. and he basically has this under this misunderstanding that the system is fair and that he can do that and that he does have a chance to come out on top. It's like, well, when you basically have no other options and if you are struggling and you are failing at it, there's nothing left to fall back on except, well, this is your fault. You didn't work hard enough. You didn't want it badly enough. You, your hustle wasn't good, whatever the, you know, whatever the messaging. You are deficient. Your, the system didn't yeah, fail like you. You failed the system. Yeah. So then, what's your what's the alternative? Like you basically have none. You don't have. It's it's you know it's the old George Carlin thing. It's the illusion of choice. It's the illusion that you have the freedom to do something other than this thing that has been laid out for you. Yeah. And. Um, Unfortunately, it is a systemic thing. It doesn't always come down to the individual. I know people hate hearing that, but this is how it, like, this is not a bug of a capitalist system. It is the system. That is what it is designed to do. And if you do manage to jump through some of those early hoops, there will be more that are suddenly appear to make it more difficult. But the the fact that it's it's not just the safety net of state support of, of uh, welfare and food stamps and, and any other here's a way that you might be able to get through this crisis which is a cyclical crisis yes it does mm -hmm. recur every now and again every now and again it recurs constantly <laughs> but it's it there's somebody in particular who comes at this from the perspective of oh this happens at the end of every century it's just the way it is that is a further entrenching you can't do anything about it it loosely acknowledges the edges of the problem but then it reinforces mm. the idea of helplessness against it and you may as well find a way to lean into it and work with it but the even the attempts to create a uh, a, a mutually supportive safety net the the people who established this settlement yeah and it's clearly been there for a long time it's organized it's it's very reminiscent of the what was it hooverville, hooverville in the 1930s during the depression yeah um that when that kind of thing is set up the authorities will come in 
and trash it and and tear and it down tear it down and say you can't support each other the state yeah. won't support you and we will stop you from supporting each other that is happening now there are yeah. encampments in Dallas is the one I'm specifically thinking of that I heard about recently but it's happening all over America where they are setting up places for people who are houseless to stay and the cops come in and raid it and they take everybody's belongings and they just make it impossible to be able to sustain that kind of support. Isn't this oh, uh, yeah. the I mean, subject of Chloe Zhao's film, the one with Francis McDormand that uh, won the Oscar? I don't know. Oh. I, I'm not familiar with that. But, I mean, you don't even have to just look at L.A. right now. Los Angeles, for a while now, has had a a, a huge homelessness problem. And it's, it's not just them, but that's, you know, you could take the example that they put in this film. Los Angeles still has a horrible homeless problem, and there are police raids on homeless camps constantly. So I think you're absolutely right, Sharon, and I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because I was thinking about it too. It's like, you know, even the, the communities that these people try to build, the authorities just come and literally bulldoze it. They just trash it. They burn it down. So even if you try to come up with a different system where it is mutually beneficial for people that are struggling and you try to give some community support the system won't allow it that's where honor authority comes in the these these are effectively the fist of the system that will come slamming down on you honoring them is a way of making sure they don't even have to slam all that hard you are submitting to their slam there is going to be no pushback i love talking about the kennedy assassination because to me it's a great example of uh, a totalitarian government's ability to, you know, manage information and thus keep us in the dark any way they do. Oh, sorry, wrong meeting. Uh, <laughs> shit. That's the meeting we're having tomorrow at the docks. What happened was Oswald's gun went off, causing an echo to echo through the buildings of Dealey Plaza. And the echo went by the limo on the left, up into the grassy knoll, hitting some leaves, causing dust to fly out, which 56 witnesses testified was a gunshot, because immediately Kennedy's head went over. But the reason his head went over is because the echo went by the motorcade on the left, and he went, what was that? So there, we have figured it out. Go back to bed, America. Your government has figured out how it all transpired. Go back to bed, America. Your government is in control again. Here, here's American gladiators. Watch this, shut up. Go back to bed, America. Here is American gladiators. Here is 56 channels of it. Watch these pituary girls bang their fucking skulls together and congratulate you on living in the land of freedom. Here you go, America. You are free to do as we tell you. You are free to do as we tell you. Woo, I'm so glad we're free, honey. So in short, this film feels like it's preaching to the choir for those in the know and a massive wake-up call for those who weren't. One majorly important character and two tertiary characters that we haven't mentioned. Frank, who's played by Keith David, who is uh, uh, another of the uh, working homeless. He's sending his money uh, off to his wife and kids, trying to support them remotely. And, oh, I I just double-checked, Nomadland is the name of the Chloe Zhao film, and it's more a case of wandering America looking for work in homeless Mm. communities rather than uh, um, 
entrenched communities. Uh, but I mean, wandering allows you to not get uh, broken up by the fist of the system quite so much. Yeah, because means you're they can keep moving. moving. Mm-hmm. Um, there is most definitely a, a Romany aspect to that lifestyle as well. That you're effectively you're you're operating outside the system because the system doesn't really want you. And therefore, the system will continually try to undermine anybody who is living that way because they don't want anyone else to decide that might be a good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so there's Keith David, who's who's your basic standard working man. It's just that him trying to work as standard has resulted him in him being on his ass. Yeah. But he is not. What I really like about Frank is he is not asleep. Frank is well aware that the system is broken and is letting everybody down. What Frank doesn't know is why and how. Yeah, and, it's uh, pretty significant that this character is, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but it's John Carpenter, so it probably was. Uh, this character is played by a black man, so he is keenly aware how much the system is stacked against him. And uh, the other two characters of importance, we've got uh, a guy named Drifter, played by Buck Flowers, which when you're considering quite how many homeless people are in this shantytown, Drifter doesn't exactly narrow it down, but uh, he starts off sort of, he's like an old coot, laughing at them, and uh, he's kind of uh, seasoned at playing an old coot. He played Mayor Red Thomas briefly in Back to the Future. He's the mayor in the 1950s, and then in the 1980s, he's the crazy drunk driver guy uh, uh, who was sleeping on the bench. but uh, yeah, he's kind of accepted his uh, his life uh, as as uh, somebody who drifts around the place. Uh, but kind of like he serves as a sort of a doorway guard to let Roddy Piper into this community. And then there's Meg Foster, uh, a lady with incredibly born with incredibly striking pale eyes. She played Evil mm. Lynn in the canon uh, Masters of the Universe movie. She was in that episode of Quantum Leap where she She's played a scary lady. My favourite three episodes of Quantum Leap. Yeah, okay. In, in the uh, extras we watched on the um, special edition Blu-ray, Meg Foster is really fiercely behind the sensibilities of this film. Her character doesn't get to be. Her character is effectively another pawn of the system and very much sort of a, a stick borne along by the tide. But yeah, she, she's a turncoat. Yeah, but she, Meg Foster, is like, yep, this is this movie called it. This movie's told it like it was, and it's happening now, and it was happening then, and uh, th- this is an inhuman way of treating people. Mm. Uh, but her character in this is a, uh, a, a you know a fairly posh business lady that Roddy Piper takes hostage, but not before he starts creating a hell of a lot of unrest. Now this leads up to. I, w- I would say the most troublesome uh, section of this film, just before he kidnaps Meg Foster. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Oh, shit. Oh. He says that as he walks into a bank wearing sunglasses and a shotgun and then starts shooting the place up because it's full of these aliens, though not exclusively full of these aliens. It is a bank. It is a symbol of the moneylenders. He is uh, unleashing righteous fury. But he's also shooting unarmed civilians in the back while they're running away. I feel like you could show this to a Gen Z uh, kid now and they'd go, holy shit. 
why is he doing this? So, yeah. uh, how, how do you take this scene now? I mean, it's not great. Uh, the, the, the optics on this are not great. If we're being very kind to this scene, you could see this as this is a man who has been pretty much walking around asleep all of his life. He's just waking up and doesn't know what the heck is going on around him. And this is uh, kind of a natural, like almost panic reaction to what he's seeing. And I think that's probably the the most generous you could you could say. Yeah. Otherwise, you have to kind of come around to the fact that like maybe Nada is not really that great of a guy and doesn't really care much about the other people. Like, I I, I get it, man. Eat the rich, uh, 100%. But you know, like you don't know what these people's circumstances are. It could be another working class person going into the bank to cash their paycheck that they're going to live through for the rest of the week until they get their next one. Mm-hmm. It's not all going to be CEOs and Wall Street types. The issue is ultimately that, uh, as you say, he is a man who has just realized his version of the truth and is very confused and his response is ugly, murderous violence. And unfortunately, we've had a lot of white guys discover the truth in uh, recent years and their response response is, I'm going to shoot up a public (laughs) space. Shoot up everything. Even before that, I noticed this time his first reaction to being able to see these alien people is to shit on two women for being ugly. Yeah. That's his doorway into confronting the aliens. Yeah. Excuse me. Just survive. You know... You look like your head fell on the cheese dip back in 1957. You, you're okay. This one, real fucking ugly. Oh. You see, I take these glasses off. She looks like a regular person, doesn't she, huh? Put them back on, formaldehyde face. That's what That's we got. That's enough out of you. You get out or I call the cops. Call the cops? You know what you need? You need a Brazilian plastic surgeon. <laughs> Uh, I would actually straight up confer that this is irresponsible filmmaking. Carpenter's a smart guy, and he tends to make left-wing horror. One of my favorite quotes I attribute to him is, right-wing horror is fear of something that comes from the outside, left-wing is fear of something inside. And there are going to be plenty of dudes with access to firearms watching this film who fear something coming from the outside, who don't see us all as one species, who have very much an us-and-them attitude. You know, guys who come up with NPC theory that nobody else in the world is real except you and the few people they share conspiracy theories with? I'm definitely going to shoot up the place for good reasons. It's You're still shooting up a place. There, mm-hmm. are, there are attempts within the story to nurture the people who are in transition between not knowing and knowing and to provide them with a, a, a channel that is less outwardly destructive and more strategic and this comes from Gilbert who is the guy in charge of organising Justiceville which is the, the encampment at the beginning that gets wrecked by the cops and yep. there's there's a weird moment where Nada knows about what's going on Frank now knows what's going on, about what's going on. They're trying to work out what to do next, and all of a sudden they're talking to Gilbert, and Gilbert is telling them, "Come to this meeting at the docks, and we'll explain everything." Mm. And I was like, "Did I miss 
a scene here? Did the, did, was there a conversation that I didn't see? But no, it just isn't there. I can only presume that the reason they went to Gilbert is because they know him to be an organiser and they know him to be somebody who is supportive of the, the poor and the, the people at the bottom of the societal ladder. So it's reasonable to assume that he would potentially be an ally. But the once they've they've gone over that point... Gilbert's way of looking at things when they he's trying to say to them at the meeting here's what we're going to do next is a lot less walk into a bank with a shotgun and a lot more no we need to target what's at the centre of this which is the signal and how we go about doing that is make them think you're still asleep just keep doing what you were doing before don't draw attention to yourself we need them to think that we are the same as we are as they want us to be we can't it's it's not exactly changing the system from within but there are elements of that to it it's it's all about keeping that disguise and infiltrating rather than simply hulk smash Hmm. again where the uh uh irresponsibility comes in is there is never a scene in the film that absolutely admonishes our hero, ladies mm-hmm. and gentlemen, for this yeah. incredibly, like this senseless, brutal action. Uh, in yeah. fact, the film is entirely behind him because he gets to say a cocky one-liner yeah. with a dry, cool wit like that. I could be an action hero before he starts shooting women in the back. And that's the thing: the the, the very end of it, his greatest victory and his his ultimate success does not come from the great huge firearms that he's wandering around with for a third of the film. It's a tiny little pocket gun which he uses to shoot the satellite dish and kill the signal. John, now was that was not the point to be subtle about. Yeah, uh, <laughs> these are also subtleties that don't reach people who see everything very black and white exactly. already and look at scenes like this mm-hmm. and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, ultimately, it's, it's the same for people who watch Silence of the Lambs and uh, you've got Jane McGum doing his tuck and strut to Goodbye Horses and everyone's like, ah, oh, look at those horrible trans freaks. And Jodie Foster, at one point for 13 seconds in the film, mumbles into her chest, uh, most trans folk are actually really Sorry, what? Most trans folk are really gentle. Okay, cool. Can we make sure that everyone in the audience understands that? No. Cheers for that, Thomas Harris. Yeah, I think this is not a, a, an admirable thing that's, that Nada does, but it is, in a way, understandable. Like, I mean, let's be perfectly honest, when he is trying to wake up his friend that you know he's trying to get him to put on the sunglasses his approach to that is to punch him into yeah. putting on he's the sunglasses he's very blunt himself so yeah. exactly like his normal like just his go to reaction is going to be violence and i think for a lot of you know a lot of white guys that would find themselves in a similar situation to this character that might be their very first Reaction that might be their first impulse is like, I, I, I just gotta, I just gotta get a gun. I just gotta get a really big gun and just start shooting everything and just killing them all. Uh, so it's no, it's not good. Uh, they could have done with maybe Nada having a scene where, um, where his the the lady who who works at the um, at the TV studio comes into this meeting at Justiceville at what point it's like, I, I tried them on, I saw, I'm so sorry, are you okay? Because she chucks him out of a window. She, sm- she does this amazing Jason Bourne style double move of like smashing a bottle on the back of his head and throwing him and through a plate glass window. Chucking with- him through the, the patio door yeah. and he tumbles down this thing and, and down at a 
giant hill because she lives up in in the the probably Beverly Hills or something. But um, she comes into this meeting and Nada doesn't even like apologize to her for the whole kidnapping, kidnapping thing. and gunpoint thing. Like it doesn't say anything like could have done with a bit of that to make him a little bit more sympathetic but i think for for a person like this like in real life you could see this actually being somebody's reaction for somebody in his circumstance oh yeah i can understand but i also needed to prepare our audiences to if they were going to sit mm-hmm. down with this to, to be able to sit through that scene and go something's nagging at me and yeah the, the school of movies never mentioned that <laughs> But uh, yeah, like, it's, it's the positioning <laughs> of that particular scene and uh, also that being the scene everyone remembers, the line everyone remembers. It also And is, the fact that he's so fucking charming makes it even worse. It's worth noting. I know, it's, that if, it's tough. If there's an underpinning message. Uh, also, I held the original Matrix totally to account for this and all Neo and Trinity were doing was shooting bully boys who were shooting at them. But the, Except for those early security guards who were just, holy shit. When the underpinning message is the way to avoid feeling powerless is having guns. Mm. But guns and weaponry have become part of the, the economic system. Yeah. Buying them, the acquiring of them, the joining of the organizations that, that control the distribution of them, all of that, that is part of it. That is part of the system that at this point one assumes you're trying to lash out against. Also, I mentioned earlier progressives and regressives. I think there has been a shift, and I hadn't written anything down about this, so it's very much coming off the top of my head. And remember, I was a little kid in the 80s, so I'm, and I, I became aware in at the turn of the century, around about the time I watched The Matrix. But in the middle of the Reagan era, they even mention the whole morning in America thing when he's watching a, uh, a politician. This is a film about those who maintain the status quo and those who want to change the status quo and do so in a violent way. Because when everything is so trapped and held and captive, the only thing, the only way they can see to change things is to burn it to the ground and start again. And that involves a hell of a lot of collateral damage. It's also why I really don't like the movie Snowpiercer for its overly simplified binary option at the end. But that's status quo versus progress. Now we're up against people who are regressive, pointing us in the direction back towards the 80s that was itself idolizing the 50s, which was post-World War II, post-depression, mm-hmm. we finally got the formula right, capitalism, go back to that, that works. And capitalism is shaking in its boots right now. You know what we really want is to go back to 1914. That's when everything was splendid. Before, the ones who challenged the status quo in the 60s were hippies who were not very good at organising things and were too high all the time to make a cogent argument. Now, we have people who are very fucking switched on, very connected, and able to genuinely push back hard against capitalism with words and get told to shut up all the time and then actually organize protests very well. Yeah. Uh, so now it really is a case of uh, status quo is in fact pushing back towards a previous status quo and everyone on the progressive side is like, this shit isn't yeah. working. Too many people are being hurt and have historically been hurt. Too many people have been left without rights without the ability to move forwards, to elevate themselves, to elevate communities. So the louder those voices have gotten, the more it's become about progressive versus regressive as opposed to status quo and the violent hand of change. 
But ultimately, That's... the the aim now... Which is why this is an analogue matrix. Humble opinion, mm. being somebody who is not an expert in this kind of thing, in social change at all, it seems that the smashing down of the status quo is not what we're after. It's smashing the grip on the status quo mm. so that we can move the damn thing forward. Yeah. The sad part to just to jump off of that is so there's a there's a line that keeps coming up in this film it's like oh well you you the world needs a wake-up call the world needs to wake up everybody's asleep everybody needs a wake-up call nowadays the the sad part of that is that people's perception of what that actual wake-up call is and what you're actually waking up to it's it's the two ends of the spectrum now so for some people the wake-up call that people need is to stop questioning everything kind of or like question different like you're questioning the wrong things really all we need to do is just accept that the government is corrupt and that they should have their hands out of everything and that regulation of any kind is terrible and uh actually people are walking around as as lizard reptile people and the democrats are are kidnapping our children and enslaving them and they're all pedophiles and also everybody needs to wake up and get behind president donald Donald Trump like that is like honestly like if you talk to like QAnon people that is the wake-up call that they think everybody needs it would I think what that comes down to is that that believing that you are refusing to accept one set of, of social criteria wholesale is useless if you are accepting a different set of social criteria wholesale you need to be able to examine everything in pieces and and take it apart and work out yes work out for yourself which bits work and which bits don't and which bits make sense and which bits sound ridiculous when you write them down in black and white but <laughs> it's it's not about this theory in its entirety is the one that's right for me. No, take everything down to its nuts and bolts. Not smash, dismantle. Then work out which pieces you want to build back up with. So after his killing spree and botched kidnapping didn't work out too well for him, George tries to force a pair of the magic sunglasses onto Frank, Keith David, who wants nothing to do with this craziness because he has a wife and kids at stake. So George insists and Frank fights back. And this fight scene took three days to film and it feels like it takes three days to watch. Mm -hmm. But in what ways does the ordeal of Roddy and Keith punching each other in the dick for the better half of a week actually benefit the film? Okay, so this fight is amazing. <laughs> okay, this fight, I, I like half of the reason why I wanted to to do this, for why I wanted to cover the show is because I wanted to talk about this fight. It's you know, I had a feeling absolutely that was the case, incredible. Okay, that's half the reason. The whole anti-capitalism thing was the other reason. But this fight is incredible. And and as you mentioned, Alex, yes, it did take um, three days for them to shoot this, which honestly, for a fight that is this long and has this many kind of moving parts to it, that's pretty typical. Mm. That and like at, at the in that time, that would have been a long 
shoot for a fight like this, but nowadays that's actually pretty typical. Like, there's a lot of stuff going on. So uh, just to uh, kind of give a little bit of backstory, this was choreographed by, I, I believe he was their stunt coordinator, a guy named Jeff Imada, which is a name that is probably not very well known to a lot of people, but... Jeff Imada, I've had the great fortune of working with this man in the past several years ago now, but he is That's an why absolute. I his name. I was watching him he... and I was thinking, I know him from somewhere. Where is it? And it's because Furious you know him Seven. from you, everywhere. One of the first things you said you know when you got in contact from... with us was that you were in Furious 7. I assume that's where you met him. Um, actually, I met him slightly after yeah. Furious 7. Oh, um, it was for, it was. Um, was a Jamie Foxx film, actually, that didn't actually do very well, but the action was choreographed by Jeff Imada. It was like the year after I worked on Furious 7, so he may have just still been around and in town and working on stuff. But the man is an absolute legend. Just to, you know, like, he kind of had his heydays in the 80s and 90s, and one of the biggest reasons why he's such a legend, especially in stunts and fight choreography, is because he basically took the sort of uh, Eastern style Hong Kong, you know, uh, Jackie Chan-esque uh, no. fighting style of like China and Japan and Korea and brought those sensibilities to Western audiences and to major Hollywood blockbusters. So he's basically responsible for any of like the Kung Fu uh, Eastern martial arts style fights that you see in 80s, 90s, and, you know, through the 2000s and to contemporary Hollywood films. This man is almost single-handedly responsible for bringing that to Western filmmaking. Uh, so he is an absolute, like, a very important figure in the kind of, uh, the kind of progression of film fighting for, for Hollywood blockbusters, but also just, like, the most talented person you may ever meet <laughs> and like extremely smart very very humble like his demeanor is like he's just he's this tiny little guy and you just know that if he wanted to he could absolutely kick your ass and no problem it doesn't matter what size you are compared to him but is just like the kindest and most humble person like People would go up to him and and sing his praises, and he would just very quietly nod and smile and go, you know, I I've just been a very I, I've been very fortunate in my career. I've just been very very lucky in the opportunities that I've had. Like he never boasts, he never brags about himself. He's just a very like humble, very kind, generous person. Is the impression that I got from from working with him for like a week, um, and he really knows his stuff. So you will notice. Uh, in contrast to something like Street Fighter, mm. where I lamented the fact that you couldn't see dick when it came to the fights, <laughs> and they kept doing jump cuts and recycling shots, Jeff Amada is very good at not doing, like, one-shot takes. He doesn't really do, like, the, the, the single-take fights like the hallway scene in, in Old Boy or something like that, but he's good at staying on the fight beast for a long time. So they're not one-shot takes, but they're very long takes. You see all of the pieces come together. It's extremely cohesive. There is some movement in the camera, but it's not so much movement or so much shaking that you can't actually see what the fight beats are. Everything is very clear and very concise, and there is a very clear 
beginning, middle and end to this fight. It goes on for a long time, but it tells a story. And it's very simple. It's the story of a man trying to get his friend to put on a pair of sunglasses. <laughs> There's more going on. But when you break it down, it's like that's really all he's trying to do. You have somebody who is very resistant in the fight, which is you know Keith David's character of Frank, and somebody who is more of the aggressor, which is Nada. And he's got a very specific goal in mind. He's got to put these glasses on his friend and get him to wake the hell up. I would dispute that there is a very clear beginning, middle, and end. There are many, many times when you go, oh, okay, so thank God it's over. Oh, no, it's carrying on. Okay, it must be over now. Whoa, whoa, they still got a little bit left. Okay, now it's over. Holy shit! Should the fight have gone on for this length of time? Eh, debatable. But I think it's fucking fantastic. So I, I'm on board. I'm like, no, I love the fact that this thing keeps going on, like past the point where it even, <laughs> even kind of makes sense. They're just like, no, we, we've got a legend working with us and we've got somebody who is so good because of his years of being a professional wrestler, somebody who's so good at selling punches and is really adept at like, you know, he's got to show off those moves to the back of like these huge amphitheaters, these huge stadiums and understands the camera angles well enough to make it sell. Like I watched, I very heavily scrutinized this fight. I don't think there's a single miss in this entire thing. And, you know, that's that's the benefit of having somebody that understands how to sell the punches. Somebody that, you know, Jeff Amata, who knows the correct camera angles, like the cuts only happen when it's like this move or this punch or this kick or whatever is going to sell better from this angle. So that's why we're making the cut is so that we can actually show it hit. And then you've got the benefit of, of Piper, who can also teach Keith David how to do the same thing that he's doing and to react to it in a way that will make it sell. This fight's incredible. I absolutely love everything about it. There's a there's a moment where Keith David uh, basically blocks Piper. Like he's, <laughs> he's trying to punch him in the dick. <laughs> That's what's happening. He's going for a dick punch and he blocks him. It just goes, Dirty motherfucker. You dirty motherfucker. Dirty motherfucker. <laughs> it's so perfect. Uh, and like, I don't know if that was an ad-libbed line, but if it was, even, even better, even more incredible. I was so weirdly accidentally on the money when I said that she, uh, that uh, when she throws him out the window after smashing that bottle on his head, it's like a Jason Bourne move. The choreographer for the best two Bourne films, that is Supremacy and Ultimatum. Jeff Amada. Jeff Amada. You got he's still going. He's just, uh, you know, he's been around forever, but like still going strong. I mean, the man has to be, you know, close to if, if he's not already 70, he's got to be pushing 70 because Born he's been doing this for so a very long uh, time. Uh, yeah. 67. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, almost 70 years old. Can't I can't even list all of the stuff that he's done because it's it's so much. Like it just it's an incredibly influential person in the world of film fighting and film martial arts. He's 10 years younger than Yen Wu Ping. <laughs> Oh, and uh, he's most recently worked on Bullet Train, that uh, Brad Pitt film. So you can literally, oh, yeah. at, the, at the time of this going out, probably stroll into the cinema and see his work. 
Wow. Um, Absolutely. The other thing, just real quick, the other thing that I like about this fight so much is that it it tells a believable story and like it it handles it in a very realistic way. You know, Piper and Keith David are not these super badasses that can just keep throwing punch after punch and it Mm, all looks clean and it all looks good. They get tired, they get bruised, they get bloody, they get dirty. The continuity from the beginning to the end is very comprehensible and it's also very believable because they gas out at one point they're just like barely holding on and when they actually walk away from this fight they're like limping and holding on to each other to stand straight up and like they have black eyes and bruised lips and all kinds of things so like i love the fact that they decide to like unspoken but they decide to use some of their hard-earned resources to get an actual hotel room just so that they Mm -hmm. can have a few hours to rest and recover like Hmm. We earned this. We need to just properly clean up and and have a real bed to sleep in for a second. Yeah. Uh, I think this fight went on for as long as it did because it was Rowdy Roddy Piper. I think if you cast Dolph Lundgren in this same role, it wouldn't have gone on for that ridiculously long. Uh, And uh, I think it's because if you watch it, it takes about as long as a really brutal, quick wrestling match. And it, it feels yeah. like you're watching it in real time because you might be used to seeing Piper work like that. So it, ha- mm-hmm. it has an extra layer of authenticity about it. Even though wrestling is prearranged, they still have to pull off all of these moves. They still have to get that exhausted. So uh, the other thing is that uh, if, you look, if you were around during the Attitude Era, this is ahead of its time because like scrapping out back, including Roddy Piper, and just sort of like smashing each other up in an alley, that was totally how they sold the evolution of WWF into the new WWE Attitude Era. So it, it, it was like it was, let, let's take this away from the theatrics and theatrically set up a quote-unquote realistic fight out back. But the other thing is that uh, after all of this, Analogously within the movie, it is one man trying to convince another man who is invested in a system he knows is cruel to understand and accept that he can't just turn a blind eye anymore. Yeah. And it's really hard to do that, which is appropriate for how difficult it is to talk people out of (laughs) adhering and capitulating to this. He literally has to punch him into submission to get him over to his side. I mean, like, yeah. uh, we're we're going for extremes here, and eventually, eventually, of course, it do, it does work. You know, yeah. um, Frank does start to see the way that Nada is seeing and understands, like, oh, things are not what I thought they were at all, mm-hmm. and we actually need to do something about this. It's it's exhausting, especially now, to, uh, to to be told, look at this. Especially like if you're just trying to get by through some of the hardest years uh, yeah. you will ever know, uh, then it's really hard to go. What what do I need to look at? And you can un- you can understand why Frank would actually be like, I am. Uh, th- this is not for me. It is not like yeah. I I want no part in this. So 
After these two guys bicker about what's to be done, they wind up uh, with the underground network again, discussing stopping this signal that's keeping the illusion up. And Meg Foster turns up to reveal that it's being broadcast from her TV station. On a side note, the trying to deal with your friend on a one-to-one interpersonal, angry, in this case, symbolically violent, but non-lethal manner is far more up my alley, so to speak, than uh, Mm -hmm. the, you know, uh, the, the killing spree side of this movie um but yeah they the the, oh really yeah the (laughs) i would rather punch my friend in the dick until he goes yeah you're right (laughs) but yeah they uh, the meeting is then interrupted by a squadron of murder cops and george and frank wind up blundering into it it's like a a running battle and i can feel after the fight finishes uh that um carpenter's like right i've got this end sequence keyed up and I've got them here how many scenes do I have to economically write to get me to there as quick as possible that's why I think Sharon mm-hmm. you were like did I miss a scene because that was one of the bits that George was like ah, then they yeah. meet the guy there's a lot of fast 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 oh it's going to be difficult yeah. for them it, to it find gets, the next yeah. contact for the next scene actually it's going to be super <laughs> yeah. easy barely an inconvenience oh really oh <laughs> really yeah uh, oh so they're, they're, anyway. they're in a, an impasse they're like what do we do next and luckily a guy comes along to tell them what to do next they get to the conclusion pretty quickly from this point, which yeah. is good because after something like this, you want it to kind of wrap up. I mean, this movie is only uh, just a little over, yeah, like uh, barely over 90 minutes. It's very fast. So it's it was barely something like this. Yeah, yeah, barely an inconvenience <laughs> at all. Uh, you want to get to the end quickly and you want to kind of wrap up the, the loose ends as fast as you can. So it, it is like you said, it is very economical in how they handle it, but it, it does the it does the business of telling the rest of the story. Yeah. We saw Soylent Green the other uh, month when We Hate Movies were doing it. That is a oh. very similar story of uh, some shady shit going on. One guy finds out about it, and there's a lot of running back and forth, and it's less focused by far than they live. And mm. it's Charlton Heston, so yeah. you're just like, oh, fuck you, Chuck. But, um, yeah, that's... Uh, from my cold, yeah, dead hand. Was one of, yeah, but, Roddy Piper was at least one of the good ones. Yeah, you're one of the good <laughs> ones. Uh, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, the uh, they, they blunder into this meeting of the elite. And as I said, the difficulty is... That uh, they're, they're being, it's its a bunch of Bobby Kotick's all in a room congratulating themselves on 39% growth over this quarter. And it's like, yeah, this bubble can only continue to keep expanding. Okay, then. Uh, and Ooh. some are alien and a lot are human. And this is when they meet the Drifter again, now clad in a tuxedo and super respectable. So what does his character symbolize in They Live? Oh, he is like... Okay, so one of the things that he says at this point is, hey, you know, we'll do anything to be rich. Like, everybody wants money, right? Like, don't you want part of, don't you want to, to see some of the good life? Like, why shouldn't you have it as good as, as these people do? So, in a way, he's kind of like, uh, he's he symbolizes a sellout, but he's also one of these people that's like, I will literally do anything to have money. Like, that is my main motivation for everything and I will sell out basically I will sell my soul Hmm. to to have it as good as these people or as good as I perceive them to have it. To a degree Meg Foster is kind of similar to that. She's she's sort of the honey trap who gets them to this 
uh, mm. right at this TV station and gets them all the way up to this actually genuinely dangerous <laughs> uh, signal booster thing. I feel like this is another one of those hastily written, yeah, yeah, the, the, the idea is to draw them out, trap them, but it's, it's almost like the Death Star plans, that the only way they can draw them out is to tell them where the actual yeah. thing that will reveal them is. Mm. Which does leave her motivations in shadow for yeah. a lot of it because it's like kind of like she, she's underwritten is she on the good guy's side <laughs> and then does a last minute heel turn or has she been Was a she plan from the bad guys all along in which case she's probably letting things skirt a little bit too closely to the um, the risky side I think it's somewhere in the middle mm. I think she wasn't a plant when he kidnapped her but after she she was kidnapped and talked to the authorities yeah uh, they, she, they yeah because she definitely ball. called the police afterwards yeah, yeah. So that, that kind of all falls under this umbrella of, well, that lot snowballed mm. mighty fast. This reminds me of Body Snatchers as well, which is one of the seminal um, oh, yeah. movies to mm-hmm. be remade and remade repeatedly. It's way better than... Did you ever see The Arrival with Daniel Craig and Nicole Kidman? Absolute fucking rubbish. The, the Donald Sutherland one's the way The Arrival. Better. No, no, yeah, the I arrival, didn't. The um, Arrival, Wait, wait. Sure, not, but I mean, oh. like, the, the... I mean, honestly, like, John Carpenter's The Thing deals with similar yeah. themes as well because you never know who's going to betray you. You never know who's a monster walking around in a, in a human suit, basically. You never know who's going to turn uh, and destroy you at a moment's notice. Everybody just looks normal. So I, I kind of... To me, it's kind of in keeping with John Carpenter's earlier work. Like, this is just an extension of, of themes that he's already hit on before. Sorry, it's not The Arrival. I'm thinking that was the Charlie Sheen movie about aliens. It's The Invasion. The Invasion is so boring, I forgot its name. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. Here's one that actually kind of refers back to something we've already kind of covered, but we might be able to add some nuance to it. What has been the effect of the proliferation of conspiracy theories since the release of They Live in 1988? And you kind of covered it with your mentioning QAnon there, uh, Maya. It unfortunately... Mm-hmm. I, I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> it diminishes the importance of being able to see through the curtain that established society keeps trying to throw in mm. front of everybody. Mm. Yeah. I think, I mean, if you go to, this is a very long video, but and I know we reference them a lot, but the folding ideas oh, video yeah. about the NFTs, uh, the line goes up. There's a specific mention, and Dan Olson does a great job of drawing the parallels between what's happening now with these kind of like hyper-capitalistic NFTs, like all of that stuff, uh, the kind of Web3 era that we've unfortunately entered into um and the housing crisis from like 2007 2008 2009 and how there was basically a split in how people reacted to it so on the one hand you had people that turned very anti-capitalist and then on the other extreme you had the hyper capitalists so i think you could look at something like that and and see how that's kind of evolved over the past 15 or so years almost 20 years now and it's still pretty much on those same extremes the hyper capitalists are a lot more vocal in a lot in a lot of ways and seem to get away with a lot more because even as you know as dan says in that video there are aspects of of that hyper capitalist system that are now being considered too big to fail so they can almost count on bailouts the same way the banks did back in the, 
you know, back in the housing crisis from, you know, from a decade ago. And that's kind of where this all leads. It's like you have that very distinct line between people that are anti-capitalist and want to move towards a more kind of like what we saw in the beginning of they live the more community based a little bit more socialist um, a situation where people help each other there's a little bit more of like bartering going on maybe they're growing their own food and sharing it with everyone they're making sure that everyone has enough and nobody has too much and then the other side of it is the hyper capitalists who are like i don't just you know as as stephanie sterling says all the time we don't just want the money we want all of the money and all, all the of money it, that doesn't exist that we made up Absolutely. and it's, all of it's... yeah all of the money that we could possibly have in the future yeah absolutely it's responding to seeing the cracks in the system by by calling a fire sale and deciding that you are just <laughs> going to get yours from the ashes that are left at the end yeah Mm. And even as this movie is like a direct, like this is a direct rebuttal to Reaganomics, because you know this is this comes out in 1988. It's the very tail end of the Reagan era, but we had four years of George Bush right after this, yeah. so it didn't really end at that point. It so kept it's going for years a few of more that years. Fucking rampaging elephant. Pretty much, beast. pretty much, and it was all. I mean, like. Uh, again, super on the nose, but they mentioned that the the aliens, the creatures that have invaded and are broadcasting this signal, they call them free enterprisers. The aliens are free enterprisers, and the whole idea behind the the free market, free enterprise system that Reagan popularized was to do away with government regulations. Like that was really his big thing: was we don't want government regulation, we don't want the state or the government to be putting their fingers in our businesses, um, which means that. Uh, you know, yeah, it sounds great on paper because, hey, you can do whatever you want. You can make all of the money that you want and like have all the success you could possibly have, like we're saying. But then it also opens the door for all kinds of really horrible things. Like it opens the door for, for you know, the byproducts of uh, labor malpractice and um, uh, safety regulations being violated, people not being compensated for their work, and then having nowhere to go to when they're not being fairly compensated. Mm. People, uh, you know, like all of these kinds of things, uh, environmental hazards that are not being checked. All of these things kind of compounding and and leading to the the destruction that is kind of where this movie is is building up to. Like if we don't stop this, it's just going to run rampant, and it's going to go out of control until we we physically can't stop it anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's it's less likely at the moment um, than some people might like to think, but the push to let's look to outer space to fill these that like we've run out of things to exploit on earth we need to find more things to exploit in outer space i i very much sell used land to be, on the moon yeah I, I very much used to be a yes it would be fantastic to uh, push the boundaries of where we can get as uh, a human species and i was certainly i'm certainly not a, a believer in the theory that we can only repair what we have here but we need to decide how we go out into space before we start doing it because otherwise we are just shipping out wholesale that exploitation model that already exists 
If you remember back when uh, Obama was uh, in office, there was one thing that kept hounding him, and that was the Bertha movement. They were obsessed with finding out uh, whether mm. he was born in Kenya or not. And he dignified them with uh, just enough of an answer and then turned a blind eye to Donald Trump's haranguing him from that point on. Whereas when Trump got into power, he had, and I'm sure I mentioned this back during those horrible fucking years, not just <laughs> one dog running around, he had... A thousand rabid dogs running around, a thousand shitty things he'd done, a thousand crimes he'd committed, and the press couldn't get a bead on any of them because they were all running all over the place and it was too chaotic. Nobody could get, like, it was like he'd do something was, weird and crazy every new day. And this ultimately. Yeah, has, yeah, you literally you couldn't keep up with it. Yeah. It's like there's a horse loose in a hospital. I think eventually everything's gonna be okay but I have no idea what's gonna happen next. <laughs> and neither do any of you, and neither do your parents, because there's a horse loose in the hospital. It's never happened before. No one knows what the horse is gonna do next, least of all the horse. He's never been in a hospital before. He's as confused as you are. There's no experts. When a horse is loose in a hospital, you gotta stay updated. So all day long, you walk around, oh, what'd the horse do, what'd the horse do? <laughs> the updates, they're not always bad. Sometimes they're just odd. Be like, the horse used the elevator. <laughs> I didn't know he knew how to do that. <laughs> the creepiest days are when you don't hear from the horse at all. <laughs> Has anyone heard? Those are those quiet days when people are like, it looks like the horse has finally calmed down. And then 10 seconds later, the horse is like, I'm gonna run towards the baby incubators and smash him with my hooves. I got nice hooves and a long tail, I'm a horse. And it's like, oh, that's what I thought you'd say, you dumb fucking horse. And then, then, then you go to brunch with people and they're like, there shouldn't be a horse in the hospital. And it's like, we're well past that. <laughs> and then other people are like, well, if there's gonna be a horse in the hospital, I'm gonna say the N-word on TV. And it's like, those don't match up at all. This has become the means for those in power with a stranglehold on the status quo to deal with the proliferation of information, not try to cut it off but drown us in that shit. Like, throw out so much information at once that nobody can focus. So they can't be held to account because there's no individual crime. There's so many crimes that they actually normalize all of them. Absolutely. There is a reason why Russia is maintaining a censorship grip on certain social media platforms and certain sources of information and including legitimate mm. media outlets. But YouTube, oh, that's allowed to run rampant mm. because ultimately it has that useful thread of potential for misinformation in it. But this is how uh, it's tied into conspiracy theories, because back when the X-Files was just coming out, it was like, hey... Shit, they're lying to us! Fuck! They're lying to mm -hmm. us, what else? What other secrets have they got? And that's mutated over the years and gone in a very definite de uh, direction of crazy, uh, specifically with QAnon. This helps those in charge, because... The crazy side of it means that regressives and status quo warriors will all tilt towards 
the whole lizard conspiracy, like the, the ones who really are that manic, will be like, yeah, lizard conspiracy, a prison planet, and uh, uh, oh, sacrificing hey. children underneath a pizza parlor. Of course, there's no evidence they covered it up. Catch them in bed they, with a goblin. Yeah, you, ca- you can't legitimize <laughs> crazy. But Water turn of the frog's game. <laughs> you can normalize it to the point where people who aren't crazy look at that and go, yeah, you know what? I'm not really into conspiracy theories. So then when you try to tell them something that's actually, you know what? This happened and Trump is now currently signing bills that allow corporations to comp- to police themselves. This is an ecological disaster that's getting worse and he's helping it every day with a grin while he poses with the pen. He was elected by a lot of people who wanted him to shake up the system. They saw him as an outsider. Yeah. How come you open the door for the horse? And they go, well, the hospital was inefficient. We're going to drain the swamp. Rather than... Yeah, the whole drain the swamp thing, that was a lot of his appeal to, yeah. to a number of people was that he was considered to be out working outside of the system. He wasn't the typical, uh, you know, a Washington type. He didn't kind of grow up in that... Uh, you know, he didn't come from a law background. He didn't come from a, politi- a political background. Like, that was seen as something that would uh, differentiate him from, like, our just a typical Washington stuff. Yeah. And it's it's a sad thing when you step back from that and go, but he's part of the same system that they participate in. Yeah. Just from a different side of it. And almost not from a different side of it because they all have lobbyists and, and people that launder their shit too. Yeah. And then he ended up acting like the, a cartoon version of all of those politicians that they were bemoaning were fucking up the Absolutely. system. And, and ultimately, <laughs> for the people who are putting him in that position in the first place and using him as a, as a spearhead to get what they want, the worst that can happen, the absolute worst that they can accomplish by pushing somebody like that to the fore is that the people who would normally be inclined to fight against it and push back will get so apathetic and so exhausted that they will just give up. Which Mm -hmm. brings me to our next question. Why might seeing the alien transport method of going back and forth between their home planet in secret sometimes undermine this story? Mm. Because I would posit this is a stupid scene to have in there because it makes what's happening in the film too real. Not symbolic, but it's actually happening, which allows those lizard fuckers to really cling to the idea of the fantasy side of their conspiracies, as opposed to the much more boring, it's just white-haired old white men who want more money than they've already got because they're wealthy. They've got so much money, they don't know what to do with it. For a start, it makes it... It, it really nails your colours to the mast of these beings are from mm-hmm. outside the earth. They are not. They are definitely, absolutely not a product of the system. It's not systemic. It's 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 a. It's, it's yeah. an alien and invasion. It, we can solve yeah, this by keeping the foreigners out. It didn't come from within. It didn't come from us. It was an outside thing. It's not part I, of I human can, nature. I can definitely, yeah, I can definitely see where that. And I, I mean, it, it it is a bit of a jarring scene. The the impression that I got from it just watching it last night was like okay they're it's hearkening back to the the kind of b movies of of, of like the 50s and 60s science fiction b movies like it's it's going for that kind of a feel and the idea is that there is always 
there with this transport system there's always a way for them to multiply there's always like more that can come in so there's this kind of impending sense of even if we do stop what's happening now they can just send more of their people they can just send more over and like it's this never ending constant cycle of people coming in to do this exact thing which Honestly, it kind of feels appropriate, but I totally understand where where you're coming from and saying like, because they're saying like, no, they are actual aliens. This is not allegory. This is not symbolic. It's it's really happening. <laughs> that lens. It makes it like, like the, well, we don't need to worry because as long as there are like, no lizard people, we'll be doing we'll be all fine. right. Yeah. Um, it's it's like it's like the seminal movie Moonfall, mm. where the moon actually is a superstructure, and it leads it leads credence to the the conspiracy theorist because he gets to be right. Also, I would say it's extending the short story by maybe a sentence or two because endings are hard, mm. and this is just a slight expansion on. Well, George died, everybody else woke up, but we we actually don't know what happened next because our protagonist wasn't around anymore. Um, there's a little bit of an element of, and then they all died on the way back to their home planet. <laughs> <laughs> I have to go now. My planet needs me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the ending where the signal uh, keeping the aliens hidden is destroyed, uh, revealing them to a shocked world. I, I love the the moment just before the credits, but it, it cuts to mm-hmm. shots of the, the the news anchors suddenly being shown to the cameras as these horrendous skeleton league people, and everyone's running around in the studio going, "Ah, oh, they look like shit!" And uh, it then cuts to uh, well, multiple similar scenarios, but my favourite is the 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 stinger at the end where a lady is having a famous time on top of a, a chap who you worked out is in the car ad so yes. he's watching his own car ad while he's getting it on get married have children written on the wall mm-hmm. and then she looks down at him and he's as a, a card carrying member of the skeleton league and, she, and he's like what's up baby credits it's it's a weirdly cheerful ending there there are a lot of kind of tongue-in-cheek comedic bits to this movie that maybe maybe shouldn't be as funny as they are but i i find them to be very funny mm-hmm. and this is one of them like to, the fact that they end on these disgusting horrible looking alien creatures being revealed to everyone and the ending shot is like just a a, a sexy lady straddling one of them and they have like he's naked from you know like you see him from like the the waist up Thank so you God can we see didn't like see a full, alien boner. Jesus. almost yeah almost a it full body like oh god like almost a full body like the the makeup and, and prosthetics and everything and it looks horrible mm. it looks absolutely disgusting but the reactions of everybody is so over the top and so funny that i i don't know it kind of like I don't think it undercuts it to the point where it ruins the rest of the messaging in the film because I I don't know, it just works for me. It might not work for everybody, but this somehow worked for me. But I'm weird, so... It reminds me... No, I I don't think it's too much. It reminds me of Paul Verhoeven at his best uh, uh, in Robocop when you've got those little cutaways Mm. and little ads and things that just say, we're living in a futuristic hellscape. Uh, but you with that, like, if you if you, you make guys. it cheery, the medicine goes down that much easier. If you're just like, no, this is terrible, yeah. then you you but, get only a certain amount of audience. Like people are not flocking round for rewatch parties of Children of Men. 
<laughs> no, that's kind of a, a one-and-done situation. Yeah. It is possible, by the way, that that guy at the end is Jeff Amada. Um, most of the <laughs> individual um, ghouls early on in ghouls. the movie in particular... Not when there's there's obviously a lot of them all at once, but uh, Carpenter couldn't find extras who could act through the makeup. Right. So he ended up putting Jeff Amada in various different costumes. So most of those early mm. single individual ghouls that uh, Nada keeps coming across mm. are Jeff Amada. Right. Yeah, he's credited as one of them in like the actual credits at the end. Yeah. Uh, there's also a really uh, a lovely bit which will probably lose cultural relevance over time. Uh, there's Siskel and Ebert are on TV talking about this George Romero oh. and John Carpenter. You know how when Michael Bay had some kid shout oh, in so Transformers, good. this is way better than Armageddon. It's impish. It's almost Gremlins 2. Which it came is all, out not I was just long thinking that, this. like almost with uh, Leonard Malton saying, yeah. like, "Oh, what's fun about this like disgusting, horrible alien?" Like, it's basically that scene yeah. from Gremlins Two. I honestly wish that they'd actually gotten the real Siskel and Ebert to yeah. be in that to, that to play themselves. That, that would have been, been awesome. That would have been great if yeah. they had a, a scene with with the actual with the actual guys. Way better than uh, uh, Alas. Uh, Mayor Ebert in the Roland Emmerich Godzilla. That's you. That is. <laughs> yes. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, yeah. Speaking of on the nose, uh, there's a, another uh, cameo that I just wanted to mention really quickly. He's not credited, unfortunately, but I was I, I picked him out immediately, even though it's like a blink and you miss it cameo. Mm -hmm. But um, the actor Al Leong makes a very brief appearance oh, in this movie, which uh, to a lot of people, that name, again, is not going to be very familiar. Well, he but He loves if you Twinkies because are... of the excellent sugar rush. If you are at all a fan of 80s and early 90s action blockbusters, you will know this guy on site. Mm -hmm. You have seen him. Uh, he's in Die Hard. He's in Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, he was in Lethal Weapon. And he also played Genghis Khan in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. So Aliyong was kind of this staple of a like 80s action schlock and usually shows up as like a henchman or like in in this movie he kind of shows up to be one of the rebels in the shootout scene with the cops um so this was a very typical kind of role for him at this time but i love the fact that he's there like i said the ending uh where the aliens are exposed uh feels like it would have been a bittersweet victory in 89 because roddy piper gets i mean we never even see keith david get killed do we? Because uh, um, Evil Lynn turns up well, and goes, there, I've got him. She, yeah, she she shoots, like, she holds a gun up to his head, and then the it's it's a gunshot cut to the next scene right. situation. Okay. But usually yeah. in films, if it's a gunshot and you don't see the person die, that means, no, no, he's not dead. He'll come back. But, yeah, no, uh, Roddy uh, Piper he, he doesn't come in back. This, uh, th this final move gets to destroy this signal with his little sleeve gun that he uses just like after all of that shooting out with the cops and shooting people in uh, all over the place in the bank and then in this running battle his as you say Sharon his greatest victory is with a tiny little boot gun and it destroys the signal and they're exposed but in more recent times it's felt like you can expose the horror of all of this stuff they now just simply resort to the yeah and so what Defense, which leaves everyone going, oh, um, I suppose it's not yeah. illegal to be aliens. 
So it, it feels less of a victory now, but back in the day, it was shot in the, at a time when if you had a businessman saying nefarious things on a dictaphone, they were going to jail as opposed to, now they'll just slip through the cracks because they're super wealthy. But that can lead to a sense of hopelessness when you're watching it, especially as you're observing the seemingly changes for the worse over the past 35 years. And a serious question is, why are hopelessness and depression that this feeling, the feelings that this can bring on, why are they so deadly when reached as a conclusion to these revelations? Just knowing this much about the world can lead to yeah. hopelessness and depression. What, why are they that bad? Because it makes you numb. Because it makes you... Yeah. It, it's not acceptance. It's not a case of it's fine that all of this is happening. But it is a sense of there's nothing I can do. Therefore, why try? And the more yeah. people that that seeps into, the less people there are forming that wall of pushback. Mm. Yeah. It's the classic doomerism like well everything is just gonna it's a very nihilistic view of like well everything is just gonna fail and everything is just gonna end anyway so it doesn't matter nothing matters why even bother when you know that mindset absolutely ignores the fact that there are gonna be countless generations after you there are gonna be people in your life maybe you don't have a whole lot of family but I, most people have folks that they care about if they're not family then friends colleagues whoever and they're gonna live on after you have uh given up and accepted oblivion or whatever you know like after you're gone there are, there are those that you care about that will live on after you so why not at least try to preserve what good is here already and make it so that it is something that people can enjoy for generations to come if I'm doing something and I know that that something will help even one person who is also trapped within this system and that person needs it, then I know I'm not doing nothing to help. And I am certainly not hindering those who might also need help. I'm not dragging people down. I'm not trying to convince them that we're doomed and they should join me in the bottom of this pit. I am yeah, not the kind of person who even can do nothing. I would far yeah, rather be moving forwards. It's it's hard not to feel overwhelmed by all of this stuff because there is a lot of stuff. I think there's there's a good reason why a lot of people and to a certain extent myself included. Like I told you, Alex, that I actually took the Twitter app off of my phone recently. Like I didn't cancel my account, but I just took it off my phone so that I wasn't obsessively like just uh, impulsively checking it every five minutes and doom scrolling you know like there's a reason why a lot of people have chosen to disconnect from facebook get off of instagram take the app off of their phone only use it for like the messengers and and like the the dms and things like that to stay connected with the people that they actually want to hear from but uh sorry my dog's barking <laughs> um but yeah, there, uh, he agrees. <laughs> Mr. Bubbles concurs that social media can make you feel overwhelmed to the point where you feel like there's nothing you can do at all. And it's a hard thing to, to come around to. But at the end of the day, we have to try to, to help each other. And we, we got to try and get through this together. There's no other way that that can happen. 
And I'm always aware that total surrender and despair are ever-present. It's not like I'm just going, well, I'm never going to despair. It, they're options. They're always options. And I'm going to take the decision to keep trying to do some good, trying to help some people, even though I do feel that despair myself sometimes. It's, it's, it's a larger version of courage is not the absence of fear. Hope is not the absence of despair. It's being aware that despair is there, but continuing to do the right thing anyway. Yeah, and I think you have to you have to understand the other side of it too. Like hope doesn't spring from nowhere. It springs out of being a lot of times being at the absolute lowest and being in the absolute worst place that you've been in and continuing to go on is hard sometimes, but often it's it's a product of that. Like you you do have to in some ways understand the other side. And I think it's it's even more like for people that choose not to fall into that and choose to hope and choose to fight on in spite of that that's the whole like that's the whole point right like <laughs> that's the whole point of life is it's it's the whole crux of of like this film is essentially uh, tapping into what is the american dream what's the american spirit well it's that it's going on in spite of the despair it's going on in spite of the the Humorism and, and feeling overwhelmed and hopeless. It's continuing to fight. It's continuing to work to something better. And there's other things we can pass on beyond just children. I was going to come up with the uh, mm, the yeah. symbolic metaphor of if imagine we're all salmon at the bottom of a, the sharpest, hardest, steepest waterfall in existence. And there's several of us going, what's the point of even trying to get up this waterfall to the spawning grounds? We're never going to make it. We're going to die halfway there. We're dead. We are just dead. We can either lie down and, and, and float to the bottom of the, uh, uh, <laughs> the, the river and just die, or we can try to get up the waterfall. Now, unfortunately, at the end of this particular metaphor, there is just procreate, have children. But... There's not many other things salmon do, but we we do we do other things like preparing delicious are, smoked salmon. Oh man! Oh oh, to be a salmon in that waterfall right now. Um, and you can literally plant but, literally plant trees that other people's grandkids can enjoy the shade of. Ultimately, we we are passing all kinds of things mm. down to future generations, and yeah, the uh, least helpful of those things is despair. And I doom. actually have. I have a very, I have a very cute anecdote, if I could add that in. So, um, uh, the two of you know this, and this is getting a little bit personal. But uh, so, my husband Bobby, who I've mentioned on the show several times, uh, his mother passed away um, back in November of last year. She was battling cancer for quite a long time. She was with us for a lot longer than we expected her to be, but she did pass um, at the end of last year. We decided, and this was kind of Bobby's idea, but kind of collectively with like the two of us and. Bobby's brother, his wife, etc. We decided that instead of having like a traditional funeral for her, what we would do is we would take her her ashes because she was cremated and plant um, a pine tree basically with her ashes because her favorite holiday was Christmas. And we decided what better way to symbolize her after she's gone than to basically make her into a Christmas tree. Uh, so she, her remains are on our property and it is now growing a, a small Christmas tree. It's only about <laughs> like a foot and a half high right now because it's a sapling. 
but eventually it's going to grow into a full-size tree that we can enjoy and that's going to be on this on this land this actual land around us you know forever so uh you know in keeping with that idea like that's kind of how we have chosen to remember her is is to turn is to make her something that we can go and visit and and we can decorate every christmas too haha <laughs> that's fun but uh it's also something that's gonna live on after the two of us are gone school of movies is kept going thanks in part presumably to capitalism there were various infrastructures required, including PayPal, in order for Patreon to be set up. But our model is effectively busking. We're at the tube station, playing our guitars, you folks are listening, hopefully enjoying, and some of you toss a coin to your Witcher. So a massive thank you, as always, to everyone who does. And a big shout out to the folks who put a crisp 10 and a 5 into our guitar case every month. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G., Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Hellas Hayo, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. So before we go, Maya. Would you like to tell the listeners where they can see the recent work that you're most proud of? Yes. Um, I, w- I won't go into some of the, the background stuff. People on the Discord will will know my feelings on this. However, I will mention that uh, I last year and even like the, going back to the year before that, uh, I did have the uh, incredible fortune of being chosen as one of the stunt doubles for Iman Villani, who is uh, Kamala Khan in the Ms. Marvel Disney Plus series. The entirety of season one is on Disney Plus now. So if you would like to see me uh, running around and, you know, uh, falling off of things and and kicking some butt in Ms. Marvel, definitely check that out if you haven't already. Imagine most of your listeners have, but yeah, in case you haven't seen the series, <laughs> in case you haven't seen the series, check it out. And also, I would mention that I am providing a voice. If you are, if you go onto the New Century Multiverse uh, podcast, uh, this is Alex's uh, series of audio books. His new series, Panther Soul. I am uh, one of the uh, basically the main villain in this story. So, mm-hmm. if you want to hear my voice acting skills, check that out. I'm pretty good at writing villains. Um, this is the scariest one I've done so far, but the way you perform her is going to give people nightmares. I'm going to play a clip I now, I can folks. only hope. <laughs> you, you should come for Maya and stay for the rest of the story, but my God, uh, no apologies for, uh, for, for the bedwetting you'll be doing after hearing this. We pushed the two jaguars to their knees outside the woven reed tent. 
Their paws are bound and they reek of fear. Senate makes the offering cry and the beaded flap rolls back. From within emerges a dark, cloaked, hooded form. Mog pads forward slowly and bends down, her face hovering close to the female. She has been weakening in recent yesterdays and is badly in need now. Part of her cheek is crumbling. Her left eye has a pale magenta glow about it. When she opens her mouth, her fangs are rotted. Her lips are sallow, and the breath that emerges reminds me of grave posts. What are your names? She asks the captives in one of their primitive jaguar dialects. They gaze into those eyes, transfixed like antelope. Shucks! The big male hisses. You can go straight to the lands of the Forgotten! Noon! Murmurs the female. She, unlike her companion, is adrift in the aura surrounding this most ancient of beings. You are both strong! Says Mog, playing a claw under Noon's chin. Your senses are so alive. What do they tell you? How do you feel? Noon's breaths are shallow. That I am alive. Mog turns to Jax. And you have power in your What, what would, would you, you use, use it, for? it for? I would crush your skull, witch! He snaps. I would welcome death if I could avenge my fallen comrades! Mog straightens up and very slowly smiles, then turns and re-enters her tent, standing in its gateway. Come for me. me. She purrs, and then to us. <gasps> Unbind him. I've I've read the like I read the novelized version of this, so I I really enjoy this story. I think it's one of your best books. Uh, period. Thank you. It's my but, favorite one. Uh, so so far anyway. So far anyway. Uh, but I really enjoy this story, and I agree. This is a very well written. Like uh, when you have a character that is this clear in what it is, it makes my job a lot easier. As an actor, to like to voice it and to characterize it, we are elevated by having you on. And as I mentioned, actually, well, on, the, uh, <laughs> uh, on, on Twitter, some folks won't have seen this. Uh, we have not one but two Ms. Marvels on the cast because yeah. uh, Shanta Parasuraman, who will also be uh, back as one of the leads in Nightfall mm-hmm. of the Wendigo, uh, voiced Kamala Khan in the official Marvel graphic audio audio drama of no normal. I am able to look through the teeth of Zhao to the other side. The first room now feels desperately far away and Delesh is pacing back and forth, the open sky now beneath her. Uh, and the door behind me has now locked. Hold on, I'll get us out of here. Somehow. So we, we've got more Kamalas than we even know what to do with. It's fantastic. I know. It's I love so it. cool. Yeah, that's, that's a super cool little fun fact. Yeah. 
So, and we will be back next week, now that the commission season is done, with the Wachowskis again. Since this is rather Matrix-flavoured, we uh, what with all the Matrix films we did at the uh, first few weeks of the year, and then we did Bound, this has become a coincidental year of us studying the finest works of these siblings, so we could not lay claim to that project without covering Jupiter... No, Speed Racer. <laughs> We're doing Speed Racer, and it's fan-fucking-tastic, folks. That's coming out next week. And we will see you for that in seven days. Until then, I've been wide awake. And I've been disobedient. And school's out.
Democracy is coming to the USA. 